Before we begin, a quick cautionary note. Our text for this episode of Medieval Death Trip does feature incidents in which very young children appear to die. As the title indicates, these stories all have happy endings. But if you are sensitive to toddlers in mortal peril, then proceed forewarned. This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, October 22nd, 2018, episode 59, concerning children miraculously saved from fatal accidents. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Today, we're going to hear three miracles attributed to the spiritual intervention of King Henry VI. Henry is a somewhat odd candidate for sainthood. He was recognized in his time as an ineffectual, if not disastrous, king, and later historians haven't done much to alter that perception. His reign saw the loss of most of the territorial gains made by his father, Henry V, in France, which certainly did not endear him to his barons, And consequently, his reign also saw the rise of the Yorkist claim to the throne that led directly to the Wars of the Roses. Exactly why Henry was so bad at handling the crises of his reign is a matter of debate. For one thing, when Henry V died, Henry VI was still only an infant, and he grew up with the psychological double whammy of both never knowing not being king and being simultaneously pandered to and manipulated by the counselors and noblemen who actually wielded royal power in his name. He is set up from birth for a serious child star breakdown. And a breakdown did come, though not in adolescence as we might expect, but when he was in his early 30s. At one of these crisis points, involving both the campaign in France going badly and the challenge from the Duke of York, the king one day suddenly became catatonic, and more or less stayed that way for over a year. After he recovered, trumpeted as a full recovery by his partisans at the time, but probably somewhat less than that in reality, uh, afterward, he never really took up the full reins of government again, if he ever really held them, that is. Uh, He grew increasingly marginalized from the affairs of state and the civil war that was brewing around him. Further illness pushed him even further out of the picture, until he was usurped by the son of Richard, Duke of York, Edward IV. That bit of history has a few more hiccups in it that see Henry being put back on the throne for a brief spell, uh, but that's more than we have time to get into here. The end result is that Henry dies as a prisoner of Edward IV, perhaps from grief or from his illness, as Yorkist chroniclers claimed, or perhaps murdered as seems rather plausible given the fates of other prisoners of royal blood in this era. Just what Henry's mental capacity was is a significant part of the debate around his kingship and character. The fact that he suffered from some mental illness is generally accepted, but the degree to which it affected his ability to function outside of the acute episodes we see recorded is harder to discern. There are some decidedly unfavorable descriptions of him from contemporary witnesses. Here's a summary of some of them from historian David Grummet from his 2015 book on Henry VI. 
Quote, Most telling, perhaps, are the comments on Henry's physical appearance and behavior. As early as 1442, a Kentish yeoman was accused of stating that the, quote, king is a lunatic, as his father was, end quote, and that the Duke of Gloucester should have the governance of the realm. Presumably, the accused had confused his genealogy and was referring to Henry's grandfather, Charles IV of France, rather than Henry V, while the slander had been spoken in the context of the arrest on charges of witchcraft of Eleanor Cobham, Duchess of Gloucester, the previous year. But the accusation that Henry VI was mentally deficient resurfaced throughout the decade. In 1446, a London draper claimed that Henry was, quote, not in his person as his noble progenitors have been, for his visage was not favored, for he had got unto a child's face, and is not steadfast of wit as other kings have been before, end quote. This was a charge repeated three years later by a Dutchman in Ely who stated that the king, quote, looked more like a child than a man, end quote. Some reports of seditious speech contained compellingly vivid descriptions of the king's alleged idiocy. A Sussex man claimed in 1450 that, quote, the king was a natural fool and would oftentimes hold a staff in his hand with a bird on the end playing therewith as a fool, end quote. He went on to state that, quote, another king must be ordained to rule the land, saying that the king was no person able to rule, end quote. These statements are difficult to interpret. First, many of those accused of uttering treasonable words against the king were either acquitted by a jury or pardoned. Moreover, their descriptions of the king match contemporary astrological predictions of his character arising from his birth in December under the influence of the moon. As Jonathan Hughes has observed, to contemporary observers, quote, Henry was destined to have a feminine, watery, changeable character, the opposite of the fiery Martian temperament of his father. As he entered adulthood with his pallid, childlike face, Henry grew more phlegmatic, lacking passion, hating violence, withdrawn and forgetful. Most disturbing, his extreme phlegmatic withdrawal threatened to tip him into a state of idiocy, the simplicity of the moon child. End quote. Faced with a prince who did not fulfill their simplistic ideals of kingship, his subjects turned to culturally ingrained explanations of appearance and behavior to find meaning in his actions. End quote for the long uh, Grummet quotation. As Grummet references, Henry was often presented as a pious and peaceable contrast to his extremely aggressive and martial father, by some as a way of trying to highlight his godliness, and by others as a way to suggest his unmanliness and unkingliness. I think the modern public has a certain fascination with the idea of a mad king, cousin to the image of the spoiled, temperamental child king. And you can find both tropes combined in Robin of the Eerie in Game of Thrones. I suspect some would really want to take at face value the hints in these descriptions and relish the idea of an English monarch with a disorder like Downs or Williams syndrome. The Idiot King offers a kind of symbol of the absurdity or corruption of hereditary monarchy, and it often brings in juicy themes of incest and other scandals. It's a lot less historically uh, sexy, to use that adjective in its nonspecific sense, uh, if Henry is just kind of a passive fellow in incredibly stressful circumstances who had a nervous breakdown or maybe suffered from profound depression. Anyway, given the historical evidence we have, 
this is a question we're unlikely to reach any clearer an answer on other than the array of positions that currently exist. But we can move on to the other conundrum, which is how this king who presided over a government plunged into civil war and who lost his crown acquired a thriving saint's cult within just a few years of his death. An obvious answer would be that it's all propaganda put out by the remnants of the Lancastrian cause, much like we had with the attempts to sanctify Simon de Montfort. But this doesn't really seem to be the case. The accounts of Henry's alleged miracles and records of appeals to him as a saint don't manifest this expected partisanship. He's perceived as a kind of martyr, unjustly murdered, but rather than this being used to condemn the usurper, it's used more to make Henry a figure of sympathy, a noble man who lost everything, including his own child and heir, a man who suffered, and who therefore could be a patron saint of those who suffered, and who had experienced a similar grievous loss, or were threatened with such a loss. There's also an element of populism and appeal to the common people linked to the Lancastrian dynasty that is more than we can get into here, um, but that's also been argued as a reason why the peasantry might perceive a special friend in this particular dead king. But his cult was a big deal. The number of surviving pilgrim badges for his tomb is second only to Thomas Becket. Henry VII instigated an effort to get him canonized, which ultimately resulted in the miracle catalog we're going to be hearing from today. But despite this record, Rome didn't leap to make a saint of King Henry. And while Henry VIII also appeared ready to continue the campaign, his break with the Roman Church essentially killed any chance of the canonization happening. At least, it did until centuries later, when our translation of the Miracle Catalog was produced. One of Henry VI's legacies is the foundation of King's College Cambridge, All Souls College Oxford, and famous elite boarding school Eton. The stereotype of Etonians, at least in the literature I've read, is of an intense aristocratic clubbishness, almost like all Etonians are members of a secret society that just doesn't have to be secret which I guess is also a description of just being in the aristocracy. Anyway, I don't really know how true that stereotype is in the real world today, uh, but our translators don't do anything to refute it with the kind of fanatical school spirit they show in their introduction. Their book, published in 1923, opens with this statement, quote, the canonization of the pious founder of Eton College and King's College, Cambridge, has been one of those dreams that haunt the medievalist and the antiquary. Abandoned since the great break between England and the Holy See, it is only of recent years that the canonization of his contemporary Joan of Arc has inspired some of those who have eaten King Henry's bread to inquire if the process cannot be completed in his holy case even at this lapse of time. End quote. To help make this case, our editor and translator, respectively Shane Leslie of King's College and Father Ronald Knox, an old Etonian, are translating a text that records the depositions of pilgrims to Henry's tomb at Windsor, pilgrims who claimed to have experienced miracles covering a period from 1481 to 1500. The manuscript we have is actually a translation itself. The original depositions would have been recorded in English, uh, but those have been lost, and what remains is this Latin translation of the vernacular originals, along with a bit of other material, 
which includes a great deal of editorializing on, and probably rewriting of, the Pilgrim's words by the compiler. Moreover, this manuscript is really just a best-of collection. There's evidence that there were well over 300 vernacular miracle items, but the compiler has selected only the most compelling of those to render in Latin, and of these, only some get a full narrative, while others are just briefly summarized. And, as it turns out, our modern translators have done the same thing. On the one hand, I'm grateful for the effort they've put into translating these miracles, which are not of such historical interest that they were necessarily likely to be translated otherwise. But on the other hand, because they went into this project with an overt agenda to make the case for Henry's holiness, they're also picking and choosing which miracles they actually translate in full. One of the features of the manuscript is a set of marginal annotations that indicate that these miracle accounts, which derive from within living memory of the time they were being investigated in the first decade of the 1500s, these miracles were being investigated by church authorities to verify them as part of basically creating an application packet for Henry's sainthood. For some of the miracles, the investigators found eyewitnesses who confirmed the story, and those are marked in the annotations as verified. Others are marked as not proven, since insufficient witnesses could be found. And others, particularly where the miracle was perhaps less impressive, or more remote, or simply lacked enough identifying information, are marked as not having been investigated. And with that information, here's what our editors tell us they have done. Quote, The principle adopted in editing the miracles here is as follows. Only those which were investigated under Henry VIII and verified upon investigation are printed in full, slight excisions having been made even in these, where the narrative becomes unnecessarily diffuse. The others have been printed only in their epitomized form, with such added notes in each case as may serve to illustrate points of literary, antiquarian, or geographical interest. It would have been possible to print 23 miracles in full, which would have had more literary value in them, but they would have been less representative selections for that reason. If the public should wish to see more of the stories translated in full, the desire is one that can easily be gratified. End quote. Um, I'm part of the public, and I so wish it. Uh, alas, Knox died in 1957, and Leslie died in 1971, so I fear my plea falls on deaf or dead ears. Assuming this comment indicates that Knox had completed those additional translations, but opted to leave them out, then presumably those unpublished translations are somewhere in Knox's papers or in the Cambridge University Press archives. There are a few different collections of Knox's letters and manuscripts in university libraries here and there, um, but I didn't spot any unpublished miracle translations among their catalogs. If any of you have a line on this, uh, send me a note on Twitter or email. I'd love to investigate it further. Knox is a rather interesting figure, um, an Anglican convert to Catholicism, and a writer whose work ranged from biblical translation to spiritual confession to detective novels. He's also behind an infamous 1926 BBC radio broadcast that pretended to be live reports of political uprising, including the destruction of the Houses of Parliament and the iconic clock tower that holds Big Ben. 
A number of listeners took this broadcast as real news, and there was, in Wikipedia's phrasing, quote, a minor panic. This preceded Orson Welles's War the Worlds Halloween broadcast by 12 years, and Welles stated in an interview that Knox's program uh, inspired him. None of that's medieval, uh, though via War of the Worlds, it does at least give us a little Halloween connection for this episode. Um, but let's get ourselves back to the 15th and 16th centuries. This edition is, as I was getting to, a bit frustrating to read, particularly for me, uh, because a lot of the miracles that receive only superficial summarizing sound exactly like that kind of material I'd want for this show. Uh, like this one, quote, A bean which Richard Dennis had carried about, stuck in his ear for 37 years, miraculously fell out of it. End quote. Or this one, quote, Thomas Stapleton was stabbed in the belly, and so terribly wounded, they say, as that his bowels were not only cut and torn horribly, but had begun to mortify, and he seemed doomed to certain death. But after humbly invoking that noble prince, King Henry, he escaped safe and sound by a miracle almost unbelievable, and that when one of his guts had been amputated, to the horror of many. End quote. The Bean Miracle is an example of a case that was not investigated. The Stapleton Bowel Cure was investigated, but not verified, so it's not translated by Knox. Knox does go on, from what I quoted, to offer a further little capsule summary of the story from the Latin text, mentioning a dog attack and emergency surgery and other interesting things, but withholds the original text, which is the sort of thing that gets my teeth grinding. On the plus side, even for a reader who doesn't really care about Henry's position in the sacred hierarchy, uh, the miracle stories they do translate are full of interesting details of late 15th century life. I said that Henry was a patron of the helpless and of the common people, and that means most of his miracles involve peasants and tradesfolk, whose lives we don't get to see described in most other kinds of texts. Henry's purview also particularly focuses on the most helpless among them, children. The three stories we're about to hear are all about saving the lives of children who appear, at least, to meet their ends in tragic accidents. I'll talk more about the lives of peasant children after the text, but first, let's see what our late medieval source has to show us. From the Catalogue of the Miracles of Henry VI, here are miracles numbers 1, 11, and 27, as translated by Ronald Knox. There are a few integrated notes from Knox and Leslie that I'll insert with my customary footnote reverb. Here we go. four years old, drowned in a mill stream, was restored from the dead at the invocation of the blessed King Henry VI, in the year of grace, 1481, 
the 21st of the 4th Edward. That is, the 21st year of Edward IV's reign. This story was attested fully some 20 years afterwards when the inquiry was made. About two years before the venerable body of the blessed and most glorious King Henry VI was translated from Chertsey and buried in the royal castle of Windsor, his much-honored birthplace, a certain Richard Queston had a watermill in the town called Westwell, ten miles distant from Canterbury. On the last day of August, 1481, being then an old man, he had taken a little boy of four years old to the mill with him, a grandson of his, to whom he was greatly devoted. The boy, given his liberty, was playing about somewhere, as boys will, while his grandfather was all intent upon his work. And, with the heedlessness of youth, he was prying about here and there by himself, when, by a sudden accident, he fell into a trough between the stream itself and the wheel. The mill was so designed as to let the water flow from above onto the wheel. Although the wheel was not working at the time, the water itself was flowing down from a full pond, indeed somewhat overflowing its ordinary limits, and by the violence of its fall had stifled the boy as he lay in the bottom of the trough. The man had not forgotten his charge, and soon afterwards called to him to find out what he was up to. No answer. He called louder. Then he hurried up, wondering why the boy did not reply as usual. He searched all round the mill, trying one spot after another, and at last lighted upon the place where the boy lay, incapable of movement, wholly underwater. At the sight, finding himself entirely unable to rescue or even to reach him by his own efforts, he was overcome with grief and fell a-weeping. But he made all haste to find the neighboring farmers, and to collect all those whom he could get within a circuit of three furlongs. A considerable number of folk thus gathered before long, and these, looking for the boy at the bottom of the trough, could see nothing but his two hands, which he had raised above the water, as if to ask for aid while life was still strong in him. There was no checking the lamentation, no consoling the grief of the bystanders. From this side and from that, each with his own devices, they tried to help or at least to pull out the child that was now past all aid. But they could light upon no plan or contrivance for doing it. There was no one in all the throng who dared go down to the bottom to reach the boy because the design of the trough in which the wheel went round was so narrow as scarcely to give the wheel itself room to turn. So all stood helpless with fright, asking of one another what was to be done next. Then, on a sudden, someone chanced to mention the glorious King Henry, and soon they were all invoking his memory with one voice. And so they made a common effort and got the wheel to turn, thinking that perhaps if they did this, at least the stoppage of the water would be removed and the dead body might pass out under the wheel in the rush of the stream. To their astonishment, the turning of the wheel, with all the violent impulse of the stream, accustomed as it was to move a huge stone with all ease, could not now shift the body of one little child. So at last, one of the onlookers, bolder than the rest, jumped into the pool, and by standing there breast deep, managed to catch the boy by the shoulder with an iron hook, and so drew him to land by a providence rather than by skill. He was laid then on the dry bank, and all that saw it, finding that the body was cold already, bewailed him with woebegone faces, all hope lost that his breath would come again to him and the life that had been his. His parents, stricken with greater sorrow than all, 
could scarce bear the weight of their grief. Yet, with heartfelt sighs and with flowing tears, when, after a while, they had spent themselves in words of bitter lamentation, they began to invoke God and his glorious Virgin Mother Mary, sheltering themselves beneath the renowned merits of his champion, King Henry, praying that if that blessed man enjoyed such felicity and such worth in his sight, he would graciously deign to pour out one drop of his mercy upon the little lad. In a moment, when they had scarce all finished this manner of praying, in proof of the merits of that most holy man, he who lay on the ground dead and despaired of by all, began to move. The breath of life thus suddenly restored to him, he returned not only to life but to perfect health and grew to full age. He who reads of or hears of a miracle so saving and so awe-inspiring will not doubt, surely, the readiness of the divine mercy towards those who pray or the worth of the saint's intercession when, with devout heart, we invoke it. For this is done of the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. The infant daughter of Ralph Shirley was restored from the dead when her mother invoked the blessed King Henry, June 9, 1489. The girl's name was Beatrice. This was proved on investigation. Whiston in Sussex, the scene of this miracle, produced three travelers in the 16th century, named Sir Anthony, Sir Thomas, and Sir Robert Shirley. This will have been an aunt. I must not pass over without mention of an important miracle, which, I am told, took place through the merits of the renowned King Henry some time ago in Whiston, a Sussex town. For though I have known some of the dead coming back to life, in spite of all reluctance of nature, at the saint's intercession, I can scarce restrain my pen. The greater the wonder which the mind feels, the richer is the matter for discourse, although in my case, the emotion of my full heart is far greater than my capacity for writing the record. A girl of three years old was sitting under a large stack of firewood in the company of other children of that age who were playing by themselves, when, by a sudden and calamitous accident, a huge trunk fell from the stack and threw her on her back in the mud, pinning her down so heavily as to deprive her instantly of the breath of life. It was not possible that the breath should remain in her while her whole frame was so shattered, for the trunk was of such a size that it could scarcely be moved by two grown men. You may be assured that the horror of the sight soon scattered the company of the child's friends, who forthwith ran to and fro in all directions, showing that something untoward had occurred by their screams or their flight, not by words. Perhaps it was this warning which made the child's father come up to see what had happened, and he, looking from some distance off, could see that it was his little Beatrice who lay stretched out there. Not a little alarmed, he hastened forward and, on drawing near and finding her already carried off by so cruel a death, found his face grow pale and his heart wrung with an agony of grief. Yet, lifting the log with some difficulty, he raised her in his hands. 
Then the fountains of his eyes were loosed, and calling his wife, he put the poor corpse in her arms. She took her unhappy burden and laid it upon her bosom, and so, almost fainting with her grief and giving expression to it with heavy groans and loud wailing, made for the church that stood hard by. There it was her purpose to pray earnestly to God for her daughter with sure faith and certain hope. For she thought her vow would be the more acceptable to God if she disposed herself to prayer far removed from the distracting sight of men and in a hallowed place. Inspired, it may be, by the example of that holy woman, the mother of the prophet Samuel, she bent her bare knees upon the ground and made known to the Lord her heart's desire, no less by her tears than by her prayers. So, with the sacrifice of a humble heart, she besought God and called for the aid of his mother, finally making that most blessed man, King Henry, her chief advocate in her need. She made a vow to honor with gifts his renowned tomb at Windsor. Her vow undertaken, she determined forthwith to say Pater and Ave five times in his honor with true devotion of heart, which she had not yet finished when, behold, the baby girl that she held tightly in her arms recovered the breath of life, and looking at her, sought its mother's arms. The mother, then, seeing that she had either gained the comfort she desired, or at least was not yet disappointed of it, began to glow with a great warmth of devotion and to magnify with ever greater courage the divine power. Now was her motherly anxiety more readily bestowed upon her daughter than the speedy manifestation of God's pity. The mother prayed, the daughter felt relief. Nor had the mother yet come to the end of the prayer she had set about making when the daughter received the grace that was asked for. For recovering at that very instant her regular breathing, she spoke to her mother, albeit with difficult utterance, complaining of the pain she felt. And when she had drunk once of her mother's milk, she neither used nor needed any other medicine afterwards, for she was saved only by the grace of the heavenly gift. Thanks be to God. Twenty-seven. The infant daughter of Thomas Barrow was from a like death restored to her former health by a devout appeal to the said glorious man on the 8th of October in the same year. This miracle took place at Cranbrook, Kent, and was verified on investigation not less than ten years later. At about the same time, and with the like issue, the crafty enemy of man's salvation brought about a fatal accident in a town of the county of Kent, which is generally named Cranbrook. He who was a murderer from the beginning, how or when will he ever be glutted with blood? Were it not that his abominable malice is curbed by the divine power and mercy, no doubt but the whole world would have perished long since. It was then, by his contrivance and cunning, that the following accident befell an infant, Benedicta in name, but not in fortune. She had scarce yet reached her second year, so that she had clearly no strength, whether of mind or body, to help herself at all. And while she was playing by herself within the doors of her father's house, her parents being elsewhere engaged, she fell upon a knife which she had found, I know not how, and inflicted on herself a mortal wound. There was no one near who could explain what happened until her mother came in and found her prostrate on the ground and covered with blood, the blade of the knife having pierced her throat to the extent of nearly three inches. 
and when the mother, scarce able to contain herself for the bitterness of the grief she felt, lifted her up, although till then it was thought that perhaps some life remained in her, the poor child was overcome by the terrible loss of blood, and so, in full view of all who had come to the spot, found rest at last in death. For a full hour and a half after that, nothing seemed to be left but the care of how they should bury her. Terrible was the grief of her parents, great too the grief of the neighbors who visited them, yet all alike believing that nothing was impossible with God, who so repeatedly fills his world with fresh creations and calls those things which are not even as the things which are, they began with one accord to implore his boundless mercy with anguished yet with faithful hearts in the midst of their sorrow. They began also to make promise to Henry, that blessed champion of Christ, of great tokens of their inward devotion, so that he would deign to engage his intercession on their behalf. Nor was it long before the issue showed, readily enough, how great was his power with God. For they had scarce risen from their places, the prayer ended, when the little girl, quickened in all her frame, felt the effect of this pious supplication. It was but a short time afterwards that she, by this gracious means alone, was restored in body, and they who stood by attained the happiness they coveted, all their trouble at an end. Thanks be to God. So, there we have three verified miracles, well, by 16th century standards of verification, in which the childlike Henry VI brought back children out from under the very shadow of death. These three episodes offer us a glimpse at childcare in the 1400s. Now, of course, being a collection of tragedies averted by miracle, it's not necessarily a representative sample, so we should be careful about the conclusions we draw from it. But that said, I can't help but be struck by the seeming lack of supervision of quite young children, four, three, and two. A two-year-old is banging around a house alone while her parents are, we're told, elsewhere engaged. Was this normal? The answer is, sort of. My guide here is a great book by Barbara A. Hanawalt entitled The Ties That Bound, Peasant Families in Medieval England. A problem for a historian like Hanawalt is that there's very little documentary evidence for what peasant lives were like beyond the broadest strokes. Their lives aren't covered in chronicles. Most literary texts tend to ignore them, or at best render them in allegorical caricature. The plowman, the reaper, the gleaner, the spinner, the mother... They come on stage occasionally in legal proceedings and tax records, which give us some notion of population demographics and property and family structure as illuminated by patterns of dowry and inheritance. We can get a decent picture of agricultural labor and the more prestigious trades through handbooks and account books and regulations, but these predominantly cover the working lives of able-bodied men and don't tell us much about home life or the working lives of women and children and others. The question, 
did they leave their toddlers to play unsupervised, is not one that the tax rolls will answer for you. But there is a set of reasonably reliable data that help us at least approach an answer. What Hanawalt uses are the records of coroner's inquests into accidental deaths, which do start to fill in the picture of how the common people spent their days, and indeed how they ended them. In fact, the content of the inquest is very similar to the narratives we get in our Miracle Collection, only minus the happy endings. As a historian, Hanawalt focuses on converting these narratives into statistics, which begin to reveal the shape of peasant daily life. For example, we see a strongly gendered division of labor. Men's fatal accidents happened much more often in the fields or forests or on construction sites, whereas women died in and around the home, at the homes of others, or especially at sources of water, whether falling into public wells or drowning in streams or ditches while washing clothes. The death statistics for infants show that in the first year of life, babies spent a good chunk of their time swaddled in their cribs. This effectively kept them out of trouble, and they would be left unattended while the mother performed those tasks we see in the women's death statistics, going off to get water, or gather firewood, or milk cows. A major hazard for swaddled infants were crib fires. 21% of accidental infant deaths were due to fire. The crib was often placed by the hearth to keep the child warm, and Hanawalt says that the fires were often attributed to chickens, who apparently would come into the house and peck around the hearth, and they either picked up and dropped burning twigs or cinders into the crib, or possibly caught their own feathers on fire and spread it to the crib. Moreover, the babies are swaddled in wool. These are smoldering fires, not the instant conflagration of rayon pajamas bursting into flame. And the evidence of the extent of burns children received before being discovered suggests that parents were a long ways off when many of these fires started. Livestock contributed another, even more gruesome cause of death. A number of inquests report infants being mauled in their cribs by pigs that wandered into the house. As terrible as that sounds, as that is, infants were actually relatively safe in their swaddling. The children who were in the greatest danger were kids of the age we saw in most of today's stories. Toddlers, two to three years old. Of the children whose deaths are recorded in the coroner's rolls with ages, 25% died when they were under a year old, 11% died when they were between the ages of four and six, and a whopping 48% died between two and three. Uh, Hannah Walt doesn't actually specify, but I would assume the remaining 16% were the children older than six. Now, bear in mind, these are the figures for accidental deaths. They don't include death by disease, so overall infant and child mortality rates would be a different set of figures. But these numbers should match with our expectations. A kid in their terrible twos is gaining motor skills, they're wandering around, they're picking things up and exploring their environment and they don't really know what's dangerous. A preschool-aged kid, four to six, has a better capacity to follow a parent's instructions and to respond to discipline and to recognize danger. They don't need as much supervision. An unsupervised two-year-old, well, they're likely to stab themselves with a knife or sit under an unstable pile of firewood 
or perhaps try to grab something floating in a millstream and tumble in under the wheel. Our three stories also accord with some other conclusions Hanwalt reaches. Based on where the accidents happened, we can see that as young as two or three, kids are spending their time in gendered spaces. Boys are being injured and killed in the same sorts of places that their fathers are being killed in, in roughly the same proportions, and girls are similarly dying around the home and around water. This doesn't mean, as some historians have portrayed medieval childhood, that the kids were working right alongside the adults. It's true that by the age of six, children were engaged in meaningful chores that contributed to the economic life of the house, but these were not adult jobs. Around the home, they babysat, they stirred pots, they fed chickens and geese, they watched over animals grazing on the village green, they gathered nuts and berries and shellfish, and they fetched water, as always a particularly hazardous activity. But the inquests still show that while children into their teenage years were spending their time around their same gendered parent where that parent was working, most of the time accidental deaths occurred while the children were playing so that we can discern that while chores and work were probably more a part of a medieval child's life than a modern one's, they still spent a lot of their time playing. They weren't just tiny versions of adults. Anyway, we see that in our three tales. The four-year-old boy is accompanying his grandfather to work at the mill, but when they get there, the boy is left to play and explore on his own. The three-year-old girl is playing with other children around the firewood, which is presumably a domestic setting, though it is interesting that her father gets to her first. And, of course, the two-year-old is playing around the house when she finds the knife. So, did medieval parents often leave their small children unsupervised? Well, what we can say is that parents whose children died in accidents, and apparently those whose children were saved from accidental death by miracles— uh, they left their children unsupervised. It's hard to know how representative that data set is. Hannah Walt notes that you do see comments in the inquests censuring parents for leaving their children unwatched, indicating that this was not assumed to be the norm. But we might also note that our miracle stories don't seem to throw any blame back at the parents or act surprised or scandalized at the parents being so far away from their kids. So my gut tells me that leaving very young children alone probably was understood to be a suboptimal situation. You'll better at least to have an older sibling around or some neighbor's kid to keep an eye out. But nonetheless, probably wasn't exactly uncommon. Another myth undermined by these tales is the one that medieval parents were emotionally numbed by high mortality rates and just accepted the deaths of children as part of normal life and maybe didn't invest that much emotionally in young children because of the relatively high likelihood that the child could die. I think it's certainly true that they were more accustomed to death than we are. Grief was, no doubt, a more familiar feeling for them than for us, but that doesn't mean it was less of a feeling. The vast body of lamentation and elegy literature should clue us into that, even without these historical testimonies of parents' grief. And it's also interesting to note that it's not just the parents who are devastated by the loss of the child. These stories are full of horrified and grief-stricken and sympathetic bystanders. It's especially hard to buy into any notion of medieval callousness 
when you see people reacting so strongly to other people's losses. Death may have been common, but that doesn't mean that life was cheap. I kind of have to wonder if heroism was, though. The last little observation I want to make about this text is how, in the watermill miracle, the writer is actually at pains to deny credit to the human beings who helped, presumably because doing so would take the spotlight off of Henry. So we have the heroic unnamed onlooker who actually jumps into the water wheel's trough and pulls the boy out. He is called bolder than the rest, which is something, but then our writer makes sure we know that his success in retrieving the boy is not due to any skill on his part, but was caused by divine providence. It's not enough for the miracle to be the resuscitation. God and King Henry have to get the credit for it all. But perhaps that's in keeping with the relationship of the royalty to the common people. We also have the father in the Firewood story, who single-handedly lifts off of his daughter the log that we're told could scarce be moved by two grown men. I wonder if this isn't a particularly early account of the phenomenon of the parent lifting the car that's pinning their child in a superhuman adrenaline rush. All right, we'll revisit the miracles of Henry VI sometime in the future, because there are a number of other interesting little stories in here, uh, and they don't all involve children dying or almost dying, um, though several of them do. Anyway, our riddle this time is one of parents and children of a sort. It's from the De Mons Joyeuse, as printed in 1511, so right in the same time period that our miracle narratives are coming out of. The riddle, and I use that term loosely here, is, which was first, the hen or the egg? Now, this is a classic ideological conundrum, but there is an answer provided in the De Mons Joyeuse. The answer is, the hen, when God made her. So, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the chicken. Apparently, they had this all figured out in the 16th century, so I don't know what all the fuss has been about since then. Our next episode will mark our fourth anniversary, coming up this Halloween. I think it's going to be a particularly good one. Until then, you can follow the show on Twitter, at MDT Podcast, where you can tweet me comments or questions. You can also, of course, get in touch via email at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. And there, at our website, medievaldeathtrip.com, you can get more information about this and every episode, including bibliographic references for our sources. And if you are so inclined, you can help make the show possible by supporting us through Patreon. Just search Patreon for Medieval Death Trip. For as little as a dollar a month, you can not only get the satisfaction of helping cover the costs of making the show, but you also get access to an audiobook just for patrons and occasional bits of bonus content. So keep an eye out on the little ones in your life, or even just the ones adjacent to your life. It takes a village, after all. And thanks for listening.